Listener supported. WNYC Studios. This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Plato. The draft Supreme Court decision overturning Roe v. Wade means abortion access is once again in jeopardy. What you may not know is that medication abortion, and by that I mean abortion by pill, is actually the most common method of abortion in the U.S. While almost half of the states will immediately ban abortion upon a Roe v. Wade overturn, it is expected that the ease and convenience of an abortion pill may make medication abortion an even larger share of all abortions. Joining me now to help explain how medication abortion works, how it's regulated and its role in a possible post-Roe v. Wade world is my guest, Ushma Opadiyai, Ph.D., Associate Professor of Obstetrics, Gynecology, and Reproductive Sciences at Advancing New Standards in Reproductive Health at UC San Francisco. Welcome to Science Friday. Thank you so much for having me. I'm a huge fan. Oh, thank you very much. All right, let's start with the basics. What is medication abortion? How does it work? Medication abortion is the use of two medications. The first is mifepristone, and this is a pill that blocks the hormone that allows a pregnancy to grow. And then the second is misoprostol. And these are tablets that cause the cervix to dilate and for the uterus to contract, and then it expels the the pregnancy. Now, many people are familiar with another pill called Plan B, which is an emergency contraceptive. This is not the same thing, is it? That's correct. Plan B, or emergency contraception, is taken within the first 72 hours after unprotected sexual intercourse. So there's a small window to take that. Medication abortion uh, is a set of medications that someone takes to end a pregnancy after they've, they've determined that they're already pregnant. And this can be used early on in pregnancy? Yes, it is currently approved by the FDA up to 10 weeks, but science research shows that it is effective up to 12 weeks. And actually, it's even effective beyond that, but more doses of the misoprostol, the second set of pills, is needed as a person is further along in pregnancy for it to be most effective. You know, many people may not realize, as I said at the beginning, how common Uh, medication abortions are. We think of abortion as a procedure only done in a clinic. How how many abortions are performed via medication? That's right. I, I do believe that many people don't even know that medication abortion is a thing, that people can have this option. Currently, our latest data available from 2020 finds that 54% of all abortions are are medication abortions. More than half. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, due to the pandemic in 2021, the FDA authorized people to get a prescription for abortion pills through telehealth. How widely is this available? So currently, telehealth is available in 22 states. And this allows people to have a medical consultation with a clinician um, remotely and they can receive their medications by mail. Mm -hmm. Can you go into the clinic? I mean, what happens during an in-person consultation for abortion medication? They often get tests like an ultrasound, and they are assessed for eligibility to to ensure that they're within the first 12 weeks of pregnancy. And it's also done to ensure that the pregnancy is not ectopic, and that means that it hasn't implanted outside the uterus, which is a very rare 
occurrence, more and more clinics are omitting those additional tests because our latest research shows that those tests are not necessary, that they don't result in increased efficacy or safety rates. Mm-hmm. So people can sort of assess their pregnancy, possibly where, when it began and, and maybe missing a period? Yeah, that's right. There's been um, a few papers published showing that people are very accurate in determining how far along they are in pregnancy. So people keep track of their um, menstrual periods now. There are so many apps available. We can trust people to know their bodies, to know how many weeks pregnant they are. And really, providers are just ensuring that they're less than about 11 or 12 weeks of pregnancy. Okay. So what does a telehealth appointment to receive medication abortion look like? A patient will go to one of the virtual clinic websites. Some will offer a secure messaging way of communicating. So a person doesn't even have to have a video or a phone, and the clinician will determine whether the patient is eligible. And if they are, they will be sent abortion, a packet of abortion medications by mail. And then at about one week, the provider will follow up with the patient, ensure that all of the symptoms that they were expecting uh, occurred, that she had the expected amount of bleeding and cramping. And then at about four weeks, the patient will take an over-the-counter pregnancy test to ensure that the abortion uh, was successful. And it takes about four weeks because pregnancy hormone remains in the, in the urine for a few weeks afterwards. And what about if someone lives in a state where a medical abortion prescription is not legal? Can, can they go to a state where it is legal and do telehealth? Yes. Um, we have a study where we are following patients fr- of these virtual clinics. It's called the CHAT study. And we have reports of patients who have traveled to across the border to have their consultation and receive the abortion pills at a post office box or other place where they could receive mail. Patients are starting to get creative about getting these these medications. And unfortunately, that's the word. You have to be creative. Yes. Yes, that's right. Yeah. And, and you recently conducted research about the safety of prescribing abortion pills with an in-person exam versus telehealth. And what did you find? What we did is we collected data on almost 4,000 patients across the U.S. from 14 different clinics. And we assessed the efficacy and safety of these uh, medication abortions. So about a third received them through telehealth and the remaining received them in the clinic, but none of the patients actually ever had an in-person exam or an ultrasound. In fact, some clinics were even offering medication abortion with curbside pickup, and and that would be after a telehealth consultation with a clinician. And we found overall very high safety and efficacy rates, similar to our previous studies. Um, 95% were completed without any additional medical intervention, and 99% experienced no serious adverse events. Now, I understand that there are other means for people to access medication abortion outside from getting them from doctors in the U.S. Can you tell me about how the site Aid Access works? Aid Access is a telehealth uh, provider of medication abortion that is based in Europe. 
and they make their services available in to places where um, abortion is limited by law. And um, within the last year, they've begun to offer medication abortion access for people in the United States. So it is a clinician in Europe. It is highly um, trustworthy. It, the medications are the same medications that are FDA approved. And it's just that they are coming from another country. So it does take a little bit longer to arrive to the United States. And then also the downside is that it opens a person up to criminalization. There are, are legal risks to ordering through aid access. And you know the, the legal risks are much greater than any type of safety concern. The, these methods are very safe and effective. Speaking of legal risks, I know that states like Connecticut have already passed a law protecting doctors who prescribe medication abortions. What's in the law? How will it and other regulations like that regulation affect access to abortion, especially in states where abortion may be banned or severely limited? I was very excited to see that Connecticut law passed. It protects abortion patients' records from discovery by other states who are trying to uh, prosecute people seeking abortion. And then, as you said, it protects providers who are caring for patients in other states from criminal and civil liability. And it, it protects those providers from being extradited to other states for prosecution. And so that is so important. Um, and I would really love to see other states that care about protecting abortion access, um, implementing similar laws. And if if they could also add the additional protection for telehealth, specifically protecting doctors from offering this, the same telehealth services that they can offer within their state to patients in other states. And then the only, the only issue is that it, patients are opened up to legal risks. And my concern is that people of color will be targeted because of you know, the system. And if, if anyone goes to a clinic or an emergency department, just because they need care, they, they have questions, they could be singled out and prosecuted. But one thing I'll note is that if someone goes to an emergency department, there is no test that they can do to determine whether she took these medications. And so they don't have to reveal um, that they took them if they feel that it will open them up to legal risk. So if Roe v. Wade is overturned, how would that impact access to medication abortion? Well, we see the science really supports more expanded models of care for medication abortion. So I think that now that we know that special equipment isn't needed, um, special tests are not needed, any primary care provider could offer medication abortion to their patients. So as this method evolves, patients will no longer have to drive to an isolated abortion clinic. So there's really uh, a lot of progress that we can make in, in making abortion pills more accessible and more commonplace and hopefully less stigmatized in the long run. Thank you very much for filling us in. Thank you so much for having me. Ushma Apadiyai is Associate Professor of Obstetrics, Gynecology, and Reproductive Sciences at Advancing New Standards in Reproductive Health at UC San Francisco. We're going to be looking closely into reproductive health in the coming weeks, and we'd like to know if you have questions about the science behind reproductive health 
or abortion. Please send us your questions. Put them on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, or you can email us. The address is scifry at sciencefriday.com. Or record your question and send it via the SciFry VoxPop app, wherever you get your apps. We have to take a short break, and when we come back, we're taking a trip to Alaska, to a place formerly known as Rat Island. Stay with us. This week on the New Yorker Radio Hour, the fewer on college campuses over the war in Gaza. Students have tried to have dialogue over and negotiate differences in how they see the world, even as they respond to tragedies and crimes overseas. Students and faculty from Harvard University on the New Yorker Radio Hour from WNYC Studios. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Flato. And now it's time to check in on the state of science. This is KERA News, St. Louis Public Radio Iowa Public Radio News. Local science stories of national significance. Alaska is known for its incredible wildlife, moose, wolves, caribou, bear. But on one island, the most notorious creature just may be the rat. Yeah. These invasive rodents were so prolific on one of the Aleutian Islands that it used to be known as Rat Island. I know what you think about rats, but scientists faced a dilemma. How do you get rid of the rats without getting rid of everything else? The good news? The island is considered a success story for bringing an ecosystem back to its natural state. Here to tell us more about this unique story... It's Theo Greenlee, reporter for the public radio station KUCB in Unalaska, Alaska. Welcome to Science Friday. Yeah, hi. Thanks for having me. Theo, can you set the scene for us? We can gather from its old name that it had a lot of rats, but what is the ecosystem like there? Right. So first, you know, let me just place this island within the larger geography. So this island is part of the Aleutian chain. So this is, you know, hundreds of islands, dozens of volcanoes that stretch from Alaska all the way across to Russia and kind of make a, a boundary between the North Pacific uh, Ocean and the Bering Sea. What was formerly known as Rat Island is way out in the Western Aleutians. It's this vibrant, green, kind of richly biodiverse tundra environment and, and ecosystem. Mm -hmm. So how did the rats get on the island in the first place? Well, in the 1780s, there was a, uh, a shipwreck, a Japanese shipwreck, and there were no survivors. I should say there were no human survivors, but you can tell where this is going. There were some survivors that swam to shore, and those, of course, were rats, uh, the Norway brown rat, to be specific. And why were the rats so bad? Did they just become fruitful and multiplied all over the place? Well, yeah, they certainly did. They got to this island. Uh, the traditional name is Hawara Island. And they just found thousands and thousands of seabirds and songbirds. And they basically just met this buffet of birds. For you know millions of years, there were no land predators. There were no mammals on this island. So these seabirds that, you know, live out at sea really only go to land to nest. And so they find these remote islands where they can lay their eggs and not have to worry about predators until, of course, the rats come. So here's Steve Delahanty. He's the manager for the Alaska Maritime National Wildlife Refuge. 
He manages all of the federal land that is preserved under this this refuge. The rats are like a they're like an oil spill that keeps on spilling year after year after year and we would never allow an oil spill to just go on for decades or centuries and I don't think we should allow rats to be a forever presence on these islands either. Hmm. So walk us through some of the strategies for getting rid of all those rats. Well, you know, Ira, you're in New York. You, I am sure, are no stranger to the rat. No, I, I, I know they use rat poison and all kinds of stuff yes. here. Yeah, so I mean, any anybody who's ever, um, you know, run into a problem with a rat knows that there are basically two things you can do. You can trap it or you can kill it. And trapping a rat in a larger area is very, very impractical because you can't just get rid of some of the rats or most of the rats. You have to get rid of all of the rats because if there's two left to mate or one pregnant female, you're going to be right back where you started from pretty quickly. So in 2008, Fish and Wildlife Service and some conservancy groups and different organizations, they went out to Rat Island and they took the poison route and they dropped rodenticide. They dropped dropped rat poison all over the island from helicopters and it worked. They killed all of the rats. But unfortunately, that's not all they killed. They also wound up killing a bunch of birds which was the very thing that they wanted to save in the first place. Oh, my goodness. Unintended consequences. Yeah, sort of collateral damage, if you will. Yeah. So have the, have the seabirds come back at all? Have they recovered? Depending on who you ask, the answer is either yes or, oh, my gosh, yes, yes, yes. So, so this 2021 study, they went back to see how the island had rebounded, and they were blown away because not only did the seabirds and the songbirds rebound, uh, tufted puffins were found in the area, and that's the first time that that had happened. But also the whole ecosystem had returned because the rat, it, it doesn't just end with eating the birds. It goes through the food chain down to the, you know, to the algae and the, everything just gets out of whack. So when they went back and studied how the island rebounded, they found that the island now is very similar to similar islands that never had rats introduced in the first place. And so scientists will continue their research over the summer? Tell us tell us what they're doing, what they will be doing. Well, these scientists sort of have a puzzle that they need to solve, which is to replicate the success of Hawadach Island, but minimizing the collateral damage. So what they're doing this summer is they're going out to this other island in the area, Great Sitkin Island, and they're taking grain pellets that do not have any poison in them. They're the same kind of pellets they used with the rat poison, but these are just benign grain pellets. And instead of dumping them out of helicopters, what they're going to do is place some very strategically in different locations, and with cameras, they're going to monitor how these pellets interact with the system. Where does it break down in water? Where does that go? Does a rat eat it here? Would a bird eat it there? And they're going to basically create a feasibility study that will see if this is something that is replicable so that they can continue um, eradicating rats from different islands. Mm, A little case study to see how it works. Thank you, Theo, for an interesting story. Yeah, thank you, Ira. Theo Greenlee, reporter for public radio station KUCB in Unalaska, 
Alaska. And if you want to read Theo's full story about what used to be known as Red Island, you can head over to our website, sciencefriday.com slash state of science. Memorial Day is coming up. Camping season is kicking off. Maybe you're planning to head to your nearest national park. Well, if you're lucky, you might already have a reservation for a campsite in one of your favorite spots. Could be Yellowstone, Shenandoah, You might have made that reservation online at the website recreation.gov. But getting lucky may be getting harder, especially if you're lower income, less well-educated, or a person of color. Here with me now is a researcher who has studied the issue. Is reserving a campsite online equally accessible to everyone? And his conclusion? Not so much. Dr. Will Rice is an assistant professor of outdoor recreation and wildland management at the University of Montana in Missoula. Welcome, Will. Thanks, Ira. Really happy to be here. Nice to have you. Okay, so how hard is it to get a National Park camping reservation? It's pretty difficult. I tell my students that it's, I don't have the data to back this up necessarily, but it's probably far easier to get Beyonce tickets. Really? It's that difficult? It is, yeah. So Recreation.gov released a statistic uh, last year reporting that on a given day in a popular campground, a federally managed campground, they can see up to 19,000 people vying for 57 campsites. And that's just whenever, as soon as the reservation opens. So for those folks who are at their computer at 8 or 10 a.m. waiting for that reservation to open six, three months in advance, two weeks in advance, whenever it opens, you have a 0.3% chance of getting that campsite. That's just if you have the free time to be at your yeah. computer to try to get yeah. that reservation. So it's, it's, it's quite a difficult. So that, that's important. And, that, and that's what you talked about in your, in your study. You looked at cell phone data to assess who is using what kind of camping reservation system at national parks, either online reservations or first come, first serve. Tell us what you learned about that. Yeah, so we looked at folks camping in the same campgrounds, same national park campgrounds at the same time. And the only difference between these campers, as you mentioned, is how they got into that campsite, whether they showed up and got a first come first serve spot or a reservation only spot. And we found that those folks camping in campsites that require reservations were coming from home locales with significantly higher median household incomes than those camping in the first come first serve campsites. And in the one urban proximate location we studied just outside Washington, D.C., those camping and campsites that required reservations uh, were coming from home locales that were significantly whiter on average than those camping in the same campground, but in the in the first come first serve sites. And so what do you uh, show this disparity to be from? It's free time, right? Like if you have a job that allows you to have more free time or you have a larger um, network of friends and within that network of friends, folks have the free time to be on Recreation.gov as soon as those reservations become available. That's a possibility. Internet speed, again, if you have a 0.3% chance of getting one of these campsites, having faster internet is certainly going to give you an advantage. Or simply institutional knowledge. So knowing that you have to make these really far in advance, which is becoming a pretty recent phenomenon. So there's lots of anecdotes when you're traveling around to the parks, people saying, oh, I in 2015, you know, I just showed up and got a campsite. Now I, I didn't know I had to book it this this far in advance. And especially as we enter, you know, an era of outdoor recreation where more and more people are interested in outdoor recreation, in some ways inspired by the pandemic, they may not have, especially if they haven't been doing outdoor recreation their entire lives, they may not have that institutional knowledge to know that 
actually need to go and get a, a reservation six months in advance, or I have to have a job that it allows me to plan six months in advance. That's that's extremely difficult as well. Yeah. And a lot of folks don't have jobs that give them that that security to say, I will be able to get off six months in advance. I know you're in Missoula, which is a popular city for outdoorsy folks. Have you seen yourself how uh, wealthier people are using their existing advantage to secure those valuable reservations? Yeah, and and this is something that's pretty pretty broadly known. I mean, this is the problem that the the National Park Service recognizes and is trying to amend. But like one of the behaviors is, let's say you are able to get on directly when when the reservations open, and let's say you don't want to be crowded in your campsite. People are booking the campsites on either side of the campsite they plan to stay in in order to give themselves a little buffer room. Or if they want freedom to say, oh, I think I want to go out whenever the weather's just right, or I'm on a road trip and I don't know exactly when I'll get there, they'll book it for two weeks and just stay there one night during those two weeks. Really? And then for those other 13 nights, the campsite sits vacant and folks who would want to use that campsite cannot. So they're booking twice as or three times as many spots as they need, and they're booking for time they're not going to use it. Wow. And, and are national parks doing anything about this? Well, they're trying. It's hard to say, like, oh, you don't need those three campsites, you know, when someone's making a reservation. So this is a really tricky tool from like a web development standpoint with rec.gov trying to come up with creative solutions coming up with, in some ways, the demand for camping is outpacing camping policy, which is actually a emerging topic of conversation nationally. Right now, we're just dealing with this wicked problem that's affecting a lot of people. Two thirds of North American residents camp. Um, and so this affects the majority of U.S. residents. This is Science Friday from WNYC Studios. You know, as the saying goes, there's always an app for that. So there must be an app for booking uh, campsites, right? I mean, would that make it easier or does that exacerbate the problem? Well, in some ways it exacerbates it. So we have rec.gov, which is a, a relatively user-friendly app. It's, it's a really well-developed website. But then there's also additional websites. There are campsite cancellation notification services. So if let's say you want to camp in a campsite in Yosemite National Park over this weekend, but there's no current availability, they will notify you as soon as a cancellation is made or um, as soon as reservations become available for the dates you want to camp. But for, for many of those services, they're charging a premium, a subscriber fee. Some people can't pay for those. So these these notification services, for instance, might charge $10 a month in order to, to notify you whenever a campsite becomes available. And just knowing that those are out there and some folks have that advantage could be like based on the, the outdoor recreation literature we know more broadly, that could be just, just having that knowledge that you don't have that advantage could be pushing some people to say, well, I don't even have a shot. Like, first of all, I yeah. have a 0.3% chance of getting one of these campsites. And now there's people who have this advantage they're able to, to pay additional money for. Like, why would I even try? You know, we've talked on this show about the overall inequities in access to the outdoors, where national parks are already more likely to be patronized by richer, whiter folk. Is it just the online reservation system? Well, first come, first serve allocation strategies are not, you know, this panacea answer either. Our study just showed that uh, they tended to have more equitable distribution than online reservation systems. But there's no perfect solution here. For instance, like in our study, we conclude that potentially the, the Park Service should continue exploring and piloting different types of creative lotteries to allocate campsites because we tend to find those to be more equitable in terms of distribution. But they're not perfect either. Um, so 
that's that's really why I allude to this as a wicked problem. This isn't this isn't climate change. This isn't uh, the drought we're experiencing in the West. But this is a serious problem that's affecting a lot of people, um, and it's one from a social science perspective that's really difficult to crack because yeah. we just yeah. we haven't discovered that perfect solution. Well, you know, this is these are the national parks. We all of our tax money, right, pays for this. This is that's correct. This should be something that would be equally available to everybody. Um, is is there a strategy? You know, this is this is not like big business trying to rip you off for as much as they can for a Beyonce ticket. Shouldn't there be a way that we can all make uh, have an equal access to this? Yeah, I mean, that's that's the goal. Right. And so in my field of like leisure studies, there's folks who study hospitality and tourism management. And those folks are they're like, why don't we just raise the price? Well, this is a public good, right? We're supposed to be provisioning these, as you mentioned. The mandate is to, for for all Americans. Um, and so, yeah, it, it makes it really difficult. And we don't have that perfect solution right now. And there's that's why we were, you know, we're really calling for in our paper a, a really strong effort from the Park Service and other federal land management agencies to invest in the research that's going to be required to help overcome this this problem. But let's talk about that. How much research is there actually? on camping. I understand there's <laughs> hardly anything in the literature, right? Yeah, that's what's so wild. So camping has just fallen through the cracks in terms of research. Uh, this is maybe the fourth paper I've written on camping. And each time we go to write the literature review for these papers, and it's like the, the literature is so sparse. And I think part of that's because it falls between the cracks of these different disciplines. Um, but for as big of an industry as it is, for as many people that do participate in this activity, it's incredibly under-researched. And for yeah. instance, just in campsite allocation, like this that this study examined, we were only able to find one general technical report from 1976 the Forest Service produced that looked at inequities in, in campsite allocations. That this is the second study that's even examined this. And and the, the the findings I don't think are shocking to people. I think people knew this was going on, but now we're able to provide the data to really show that this is an inequitable system. Well, we wish you great luck. May the campsites be with you in your research. Thank you so much, Ira. Really appreciate it. Dr. Will Rice, Assistant Professor of Outdoor Recreation and Wildland Management at the University of Montana in Missoula. After the break, is climate change changing the menu at seafood restaurants? We'll take a look. Stay with us. This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Plato. For the rest of the hour, we're diving into seafood, squid, salmon, tuna, because the seafood options on restaurant menus are not the same as they were 30 years ago. And what we love now may not stay on menus, thanks to, you guessed it, climate change. Warming waters means changes to fish stocks, and that means a different catch is getting to your plate. Researchers from the University of British Columbia looked at more than 360 menus, dating back as far as 1880, and they found a connection between climate change and which seafood types rose to fame on restaurant menus over the years and which ones flopped off. Get it? On our menu is Dr. William Chung of the University of British Columbia's Changing Ocean Research Unit based in Vancouver, British Columbia. Welcome to Science Friday. Thank you for having me. You know, looking at menus is a very clever way to track the impact of climate change. How did you come up with that idea? Yes. Uh, so for 
for, for me and my team, uh, we have been studying climate change effects on the oceans and fish stocks and fisheries for, for the last decade. Uh, we, we find connections between uh, the changing ocean conditions, particularly ocean warming with uh, the fish stocks and uh, the fish that our fisheries are catching. And uh, we want to then know how that affects people who may be less connected to the oceans. I mean, people who live in a city that do not uh, go out fishing uh, or do not even visit the coast uh, uh, very often. And one thing that I think um, they can connect uh, to the ocean is through the food that they eat. Um, um, so we think about, okay, let's start with restaurants. Yeah, so she looked at more than 360 menus going back to the 1880s. How do you do that? I mean, how do you even find menus that go back to the 1880s? Yes, uh, so one thing that uh, we thought of is uh, to know what uh, the restaurant offer. Um, this menu um, is uh, the uh, very good starting point. Uh, and one of the reasons is that uh, there is a physical or digital record of menu. Um, and uh, and that uh, we can also uh, easily assess um, these uh, record as well. Um, so for uh, present day menu, uh, many of the restaurants, uh, particularly in big city like Vancouver, uh, they, they the menu online, uh, especially during the pandemic time, um, and that uh, there are also uh, records, uh, particularly for the older menu um, that uh, are kept in museum. Um, we also find uh, archives of uh, restaurant menu or banquet menu uh, in uh, the city of Vancouver uh, archives. And and these menus told you a story, didn't they? Exactly. Um, so we were really surprised that um, the uh, our analysis um, actually shows what we were uh, expecting that uh, the climatic conditions affects uh, the uh, kind of seafood that the uh, restaurant would serve in these different cities. But we originally thought that um, the, there were so many factors that uh, um, that would be affecting uh, what a restaurant would serve in their menu. Demand from their uh, customers, uh, the price of the seafood, uh, uh, or just kind of the, uh, the, the trend um, of uh, food culture at the time. But even with all these uh, factors, we find that there, uh, there's a relationship between the, the kind of seafood at the restaurant surf uh, and um, the uh, environmental conditions uh, of the ocean adjacent to the city, where uh, many of these seafood are, are sourced. Hmm. And I know one standout species from your paper was the Humboldt squid. Uh, what, what did you learn about that? Tumbo squid is a really good example to illustrate why we are seeing that uh, the seafood menu is actually got, getting uh, warmer in the sense that it is uh, containing now uh, more warmer water species compared to uh, the past uh, in Vancouver. Humble squid is a, a species, uh, a squid that preferred uh, warm water. And we know that in, in recent years, uh, as the oceans warms up, uh, and particularly in the, um, in the years where the oceans uh, of British Columbia uh, was particularly warm, uh, the uh, humble squid uh, distribution expand to our coast uh, and often in large numbers. And, and we find that uh, humble squid uh, before those time period, uh, actually uh, we couldn't find that uh, in the seafood menu that we look at. Uh, but then uh, it only occurred in recent years um, and uh, it's actually actually getting more common. Um, 
And um, so one of the reasons that uh, we suggest is that because of the expansions uh, of the humble squid as the oceans uh, warms up, uh, it actually um, uh, increased the, uh, the availability of humble squid to mm. uh, the restaurant and thus uh, the chef is more likely to select uh, the species uh, in the menu. Wow. So, so when did the, the humble squid just start showing up on the menu? About what year? It's uh, in the uh, in the last uh, uh, a decade. Really? Yes. Wow! And there you found them on many menus. Yes, we we did. Uh, and and before the, the contrast is that before that uh, we couldn't find that in any menu that we we look at. That is amazing. And and on the flip side, are there any fish that aren't as popular on menus anymore? Mm. One of the big contrasts um, is uh, Pacific sardine. Uh, Pacific sardine was uh, very common in um, seafood menu in Vancouver uh, before the 1950s. Uh, and uh, because at that time, uh, British Columbia uh, had a, a big sardine fisheries, uh, but then the, the sardine fisheries collapsed. Uh, it was because of various reasons, overfishing, uh, because of environmental change. Uh, so uh, since then, uh, sardine become rare in the seafood menu. But one thing is that uh, based on uh, our previous research, as well as some uh, research from other colleagues, uh, we know that uh, Pacific sardine is a warm water preferred species. And when we use uh, computer simulation models to make projections of uh, future change in uh, sardine populations and fisheries, we project that uh, uh, British Columbia will have uh, more sardine uh, that may likely stimulate uh, more fisheries catches uh, of, uh, of sardine as well. So we expect that in the near future, sardine will become more common uh, in seafood menu. And what fish would the sardines be replacing? Um, you know, could it be mm. salmon? I'm thinking of salmon as a cold water fish and yeah. as a staple on the West Coast, right? Would, are salmon disappearing? That's uh, what uh, we are worrying too, um, particularly sockeye salmon. We know that uh, sockeye salmon uh, have not been doing really well uh, in the wild populations in British Columbia uh, in the last decade. Um, and even with really uh, strong conservation effort, uh, the salmon populations are still is not in a good situation. Uh, and part of the reason is because of the, the changing climate. Uh, and that, uh, as you said, sockeye salmon is a preferred colder waters. Um, and yeah. so the warmer waters actually becomes uh, a threat to them. We project actually uh, sockeye salmon will, will, population will, will decline further if our climate continues to, to change uh, with the mitigation. Uh, so what it means is that uh, it, it's likely that the local seafood menu will become less uh, likely to serve uh, salmon, soccer salmon. It is likely to become more expensive and less accessible to consumers as well. Yeah, you know, there are lots of factors, I think, to consider here, like people's taste changing and other problems in the ocean that, that affect seafood. How do you know these changes are from climate change and not just a fad that, you know, we're, we're no longer eating this kind of fish or we are eating this kind of fish. That's a good point. And we admit that um, many of those uh, other factors besides uh, climate uh, are affecting um, the restaurant um, uh, choice of uh, seafood. Um, in their menu, um, and that it is very difficult for us to just isolate um, the climate effects uh, when we analyze the seafood menu. Uh, we did some 
analysis to um, to try to reduce the inference. Uh, so, for example, we know that the recent years there are more uh, aquaculture or farm-based uh, seafood uh, that are available to uh, local restaurant. We we uh, identify those species that are not uh, native to British Columbian waters. And um, so we assume those species to be either imported or uh, uh, farmed by the, uh, fish farm. So and a good example is Atlantic salmon. Naturally, Atlantic salmon does not occur uh, in British Columbia. So we, we exclude those uh, from our analysis. This helps us to focus on species that are, are caught from uh, uh, from local waters. So that would help us to uh, uh, build a stronger links between uh, the changing ocean environments uh, in uh, the waters outside of British Columbia uh, and the changing uh, seafood menu. Mm. My last question to you, I need you to look into your crystal ball. So I walk into a seafood restaurant 20 years from now. What seafood am I going to find on the menu and what's going to be gone? In this case, uh, we will be um, uh, seeing uh, much more squid in our menu, uh, both humble squid uh, as well as other, uh, other squid species. Uh, and uh, so uh, we will be having a menu that is uh, full of squid as well as uh, sardine as well. In contrast, uh, our, our signature species like sockeye salmon uh, is likely to, uh, to become uh, uh, rarer and uh, less common. Any chance we get some anchovies in there? You know, the sardines, anchovies are warm water, are they not? Actually, um, the in this case, the, the, uh, the, the sardine will be a more likely species uh, to, to see than the anchovy. Oh. Yeah. Thinking of my Caesar salad. <laughs> I like anchovy too, yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's about it. It's fascinating uh, using menus to figure out what our food is going to be like in the future. Thank you for taking time to be with us today. You're welcome. Thank you very much. Dr. William Chung of the University of British Columbia's Changing Ocean Research Unit based in Vancouver. You're listening to Science Friday from WNYC Studios. Okay, so seafood selections on restaurant menus are changing along with our climate. But before a fish turns into a dish, it has to go through a chef. Here to tell us how chefs are adjusting to a changing basket of ingredients is Chef Ned Bell, the owner and chef at the Naramata Inn in Naramata, British Columbia. Welcome to Science Friday. Thank you so much. Thrilled to be here. Nice to have you. Now, now I understand that you've been a chef for, what, 30 years? Yes. Did the menu, has the menu looked different from when you started versus now? When I started cooking, dinner looked like beef tenderloin, overcooked asparagus and mashed potatoes. <laughs> and, you know, that was sort of the, you know, maybe the European influence of meat and potatoes, you know, nutrient dense plant-based ingredients are becoming more and more and more um, important and relevant to a healthy diet. And the way I like to describe my food is I, food is I garnish with sustainability. So high quality protein, often from the ocean, um, ingredients that are harvested, grown, or caught uh, ethically in the most sustainable manner possible. And of course, maybe a slightly smaller portion size. Chef, we just heard that Humboldt squid are a fairly new addition to Vancouver's menus. Years ago, you wouldn't have found them anywhere. What do you, what do you make of that? Do you, do you use Humboldt squid? 
Well, absolutely. I have. Humboldt squid became more and more relevant and prevalent on uh, on our menus because fishers would offer them to us because the ocean was warming and species were moving. And, you know, for me, I really want to eat and cook with the ecosystem. So as uh, new fish and seafood appear on the scene, this is not a terrifying fact. This is a nice challenge for you to cook up new dishes. Oh, gosh, yeah. I mean, it's it, it forces us to be creative, of course. But at the end of the day, I'm I'm a chef. I'm I live every day in creativity. Um, I'm not a consumer, although, of course, I am. But, you know, it, seafood can be daunting. It can be confusing. It can be scary. It's hard to cook. It's smelly. It could look funny. It could have heads and tails and fish and skins and eyes and all the things. We like square chunks of flavorless protein in the middle of our plate. We have always liked that in North America. We're not very adventurous. And so I really want people to, as I said before, eat with the ecosystem and, you know, maybe just be willing to be a little flexible, adapt a touch to what your fisher or your fishmonger may suggest you should be cooking that day. That brings me to this question. Just right in that wheelhouse. I mean, is there any seafood that you'd love to put on your menu, but you're worried people won't eat it? You know, right now, I mean, it's hard to answer that question because it would change every season. It would change every month. You know, right now is the BC spot prawn season. It's about a seven to nine week season here up where I live. And as a bycatch of that fishery is octopus, a giant Pacific octopus. Well, there's no targeted fishery for giant Pacific octopus. So all of that is what we call a bycatch of the spot prawn fishery. Um, and so what I would love is if we maybe were a little bit more adventurous when we went out to restaurants and said, you know what, I'm going to order that octopus feature that the chef put on his or her menu tonight. Speaking of the ocean and the fish and the seafood that are in it, and we can see that that is changing as climate change heats up the ocean. If I were to walk hopefully, into your restaurant in 20 years. What seafood do you think I'd find on your menu? Shellfish, for sure. Mother Nature's real fast food. If we are lucky to still have healthy oceans, and that is a big if, depending on climate change and acidification and warming oceans and all of that. Shellfish, um, A, it's delicious. B, it's available year-round. C, it's it's relatively inexpensive in comparison to some higher-priced, you know, uh, proteins. I would say smaller fish, uh, you know, not, not big fin fish, but, you know, as we were talking about earlier, anchovies and sardines and, you know, some of these fisheries that, uh, that if the ocean is thriving, these fisheries thrive. Might we see more seaweed salad on your restaurant in the future from kelp or whatever other kind of algae is growing there? Oh, gosh, yeah. I mean, seaweed, superfood, high in vitamins and nutrient density and all the delicious things. It adds umami and briny, salty tastiness to all kinds of different recipes. And, and it really, uh, I hope, you know, finds its way onto our dinner tables, not only in restaurants, but maybe also into our homes. Chef, that's about all the time we have. I want to thank you for taking time to be with us today. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks very much for having us. Chef Ned Bell, the owner and chef of the Naramata Inn in Naramata, British Columbia. If you're interested in some other ways our menus might be changing, next week we'll sample some other foods that might become more popular on a warming planet. Cassava, anybody?
And that's about all the time we have for this week. If you missed any part of this program or you'd like to hear it again, subscribe to our podcasts or ask your smart speaker to play Science Friday. Oh, well, yeah, you could say hello to us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or email us the old-fashioned way, sci-fi at sciencefriday.com. Send us feedback. We'd love to hear from you. Have a great weekend. We'll see you next week. I'm Ira Flato.